Your notes and information right here, right now. Welcome to Just Twerts, your weekly helper for anything twerts related. I'm your host, Brent Lian. Alright, hello guys, this is Brent. Today we're on the ninth episode of Just Towards the podcast series. We're here very luckily joined by Jessica Otavi and Dr. Belinda Reef. Today our topic is going to be about duty of care. So it's our first episode generally about the duty of care. So and negligence. And negligence, Which exactly. is a tricky topic. Yeah. Shall we kick it off? Sure. So negligence is considered an action on the case, right? It is. So that means that damage is the gist of the action. But before we get into that, could we um, go through the, the five fingers? of negligence. Do you yeah. call it the five fingers of negligence? <laughs> we have to give credit to my colleague uh, Dr. Penny Crossley for the idea of the five fingers of negligence, which right. is a helpful idea for students in remembering each of the elements of negligence. But I always say to students, please don't refer to the five <laughs> fingers of negligence in your exam answer, but it's a helpful way of remembering each element. So the first element is that the plaintiff must establish that the defendant owes them a duty of care. The plaintiff has to show that the defendant breached that duty of care and that the breach is a cause of the harm suffered by the plaintiff. The plaintiff also has to show that the harm they suffered is not too remote from the defendant's negligence so that the damage is a a reasonably foreseeable consequence of the defendant's negligence. Something to keep in mind with negligence as well is that the onus of proof is always on the plaintiff. So plaintiff bears the onus of proving on the balance of probabilities all of the elements negligence. Right. Right, because there's no fault element that's like equivalent to... Well, there is a fault element. So breach of the duty of care, that is the fault element of negligence. That is negligence, if you like, in the tort of negligence. Remember that negligence can be both a fault element in, in other torts, and it can also be a whole independent tort itself. But within that tort, we do have a fault element. We do have to show fault. And that fault is a breach of the duty of care. It's the lack of the exercise of reasonable care by the defendant. I think in terms of trespass, I recommend all of the listeners to check out our second episode, Historical Distinction, in which I talked to Owen and he mentioned negligence as a fault element. And that's relevant in the area of trespass to the person. But as for today, we want to focus more on the duty of care generally. Yeah, you mentioned reasonable care. Yes. Reasonable foreseeability is quite pertinent, but which parts of the five fingers are require reasonable foreseeability? Well, the first one is establishing a duty of care, so reasonable foreseeability of harm to the plaintiff or a, a class of people that the plaintiff belongs to is central to establishing a duty of care. It's also relevant to breach and it's also relevant to remoteness, but it's used in different ways for each of those elements, so that's just something to keep in mind. Right, so for the first element, as in establishing a duty of care, it's a reasonable foreseeability of a, a class of plaintiffs? Reasonable foreseeability of of either this particular plaintiff or a class of people that the plaintiff belongs to. So we might say, was it reasonably foreseeable that school children as a class of plaintiff would suffer harm? The other thing in relation to establishing a duty of care, although the main focus is on whether harm to the plaintiff is reasonably foreseeable, we're also asking whether this particular type of harm was reasonably foreseeable. So we're saying was physical harm to the plaintiff reasonably foreseeable or was psychiatric harm to the plaintiff reasonably foreseeable? 
foreseeable. That's just something to keep in mind as well. Other than the foreseeability of harm, what are some other factors that you will take into consideration in determining whether a duty of care is existent or not? That's always been a tricky question for the courts. So mm. since Donahue and Stevenson, which is the foundational case yeah. in establishing a duty of care, we know that as part of the neighbour principle, Lord Atkin said that the defendant owes a duty to take reasonable care to avoid acts or omissions where it is reasonably foreseeable that those acts or omissions would harm the plaintiff. So reasonable foreseeability in that sense has always been central to establishing a duty of care. The question for the courts has always been, what else? Is something else required? And if there is, what is it? What is that extra thing? Exactly. One test that has been popular in the High Court and which is associated with masonera of the High Court was a universal test of proximity. So first of all, you'd have reasonable foreseeability of harm to the plaintiff. And then as a kind of control mechanism, the courts would also look at the idea of proximity between the plaintiff and the defendant. But they used the term proximity in that context very broadly. It was a very broad concept and it was broader than originally proposed by Lord Atkin. It included what we might call normative considerations about whether it was appropriate for a duty of care to be imposed. But the idea of proximity as a universal test of imposing a duty of care fell out of favour with the High Court. And we can see that through a line of cases, say beginning with Hill and Van Erp, and then through Perry and Append, and then in Sullivan and Moody, which was a unanimous decision of the High Court, the High Court discarded the idea of proximity as the sort of universal test. They also rejected a test developed by the House of Lords called the Caparo test, which was a three-stage test developed in a case called Caparo and Dixon. And what seems to have emerged from Sullivan and Moody is a preference for the salient features approach. And that approach was described very helpfully by President Alsop in Caltech's refineries and Staver. And in that case, President Alsop referred to the salient features approach as a multifactorial approach that involves a close analysis of the facts bearing on the relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant with reference to the salient features or factors that affect whether it's appropriate to impose a duty of care on the defendant. So clearly one of those is reasonable foreseeability of harm to the plaintiff. Some of the other salient features include proximity, the degree and nature of control able to be exercised by the defendant to avoid harm, and the degree of vulnerability of the plaintiff to the defendant conduct. What President Alsop stresses in this case is that the salient features he lists, it's not an exhaustive list, first of all, so there may be other features that are relevant depending on the facts of the case. Which features are going to be considered salient will depend on the facts of the case. And that's why it's been so hard for the courts to establish one universal test for establishing a duty of care. I, th I think students find this a bit difficult to deal with because it seems a bit vague. Yeah. It's not just a checklist of factors that we work through. That's true. The courts are going to consider which ones are relevant to the case that they're looking at. 
To sort of summarise what I've said, obviously reasonable foreseeability of harm to the plaintiff or to the class of people that the plaintiff belongs to is always going to be our central inquiry. And then President Alsop has described the salient features as acting as the control mechanism on reasonable foreseeability. So these salient features, one or more of them may or may not be relevant depending on the circumstances of the case. The other thing to keep in mind is that we're always looking at the cases that have been decided, we always need to refer back to precedent. In some circumstances, that may involve considering analogous but non-binding cases and thinking about how they might apply to the case that we have in front of us. Can they be extended to cover a new set of facts that the court is considering? So that's what I would refer to as an incremental approach. What's the concept of incremental approach? Which case is it from? Well, the case that we discuss when we look at the incremental approach is Home Office and Dorset Yacht. So we look at Lord Diplock's judgment in Home Office and Dorset Yacht because he provides a very detailed description of what is involved in the incremental approach. What he says is that we look at the established categories of duty, we look at the cases that establish a relevant duty of care, and we look at the factors the characteristics of the relationships between the parties and the factors relevant in that case to establishing a duty of care. So we might identify factors A, B, C, D. And then we look at the case before us and we say, okay, how many of those factors are present in the case before us? And we might say, okay, we've got factors A, B, C present in our case. Does that mean that we can modify the established duty of care or extend it to incorporate our case where we've only got factors A, B, C? Or what if we've got factors A, B, C and E? We've got a new factor. Does that mean the established duty can be modified to apply to our case? So that's a that's a very um, basic overview of the incremental approach. Basically, we're reasoning by analogy. We're saying that this case, which has established a duty of care, is sufficiently similar to the case before us now that we can extend the duty of care to this new set of facts that we're dealing with. I was just wondering, what do you mean by um, normative considerations? As to appropriateness, is it just like, do you look at community standards or...? That's a really tricky question, actually. That's a great question to ask. (laughs) So when we think about the list of salient features in Caltech's refineries in Stava, we can see that some of them are factual matters. Something like the plaintiff's vulnerability to the defendant's conduct. Some of the salient features, however, are what we might call normative or policy considerations. So some of those relate to the idea of coherence in the law, that there shouldn't be conflicts between duties of care and negligence and established equitable principles or other areas of tort law. So that's one of these more normative considerations or what we might refer to as policy considerations, where the court is saying, is it appropriate to impose a duty of care? Should we impose a duty of care? What would be the consequences of doing so for the legal system more broadly. That's one example of a policy consideration, the idea of coherence in the law. What is tricky is what other policy considerations the court might consider. And those are policy considerations that might come from statutes. There might be particular policies or objectives that are derived from that statute that are relevant to determining whether or not a duty of care can be established. There are other, I guess, what we might call more general policy 
considerations, like the idea of personal autonomy and the idea that we have the right to do whatever we want with our own person. We see that as a policy consideration that comes through, particularly in area of consent to medical treatment. The courts stress the idea that plaintiffs have the right to do whatever they want with their own person, and that's why we always need consent before performing medical treatment on people, except in narrow circumstances. Whether the court should refer to things like community standards more broadly is a more difficult question, and at least some members of the court seem to think that it's not appropriate or should only be done as a last resort. It's a bit of a tricky area because the High Court seems to say it's important that duties of care are established with reference to legal principles, not policy considerations. But then on the other hand, there clearly are policy considerations that we are allowed to take into account. And in some circumstances, it's unavoidable that we have to consider policy considerations of one kind or another. Mm, That was really interesting. (laughs) I remember reading in Sullivan and Moody that it's a search for um, principle, not policy. That's exactly right. Yes. All right. Moving on to our next question, which is submitted by Jessica. She wants to ask (laughs) if you're doing the final exam and you can only learn or cite three cases, which three cases would you cite and why? Sure. First of all, I'm just going to take this opportunity to stress to my students, you do have to read the cases. (laughs) The case case law is, I mean, first of all, it's our main source of law along with statutes and it's the foundation of our doctrine. As lawyers, that's what we do every day is, is read cases. But saying that, if I was trapped on a desert island with no books and only limited internet access, if I could only download three cases from the internet and going to limit my selection as well to establishing a duty of care. So I'm going to say, okay, what are my sort of top three cases for establishing a novel duty of care? The first one of, would of course be Donahue and Stevenson. Right. Not only is it foundational to the test for establishing a duty of care, it's foundational to the modern tort of negligence. And it's such a famous case, it would be very embarrassing not to not. It's a real classic of tort law, so that's probably my top case. I also think Sullivan and Moody is an important case to read. First of all, because it's a unanimous judgment from the High Court that has set us on the contemporary path to the test that we now use for establishing a duty of care. The other case that I would look at is Caltex Refineries and Staver, and the main reason for that is because that president also provides such a comprehensive overview of the previous tests that the High Court has used for establishing a duty of care and the current approach. I think that's a really helpful case for students to read. Thank you. Yeah, that was helpful. So there are already established duties of care. Could you briefly go through just a few of those established ones? Sure thing. Most of the time when a plaintiff brings a case of negligence, there's going to be an established duty of care that applies to their case. So most of the time, we don't actually need to consider the test for establishing a novel duty of care. Most of the time, the plaintiff can simply point to an established duty of care that applies in their case. And there are a very large number of established duties of care. A few of the duties of care that we look at include the duty that manufacturers owe to consumers of their products. So in our course, we talk about the fact that the narrow ratio coming out of Donahue and Stevenson was very quickly picked up in Australian law. And it's now established that manufacturers owe a duty to protect consumers 
customers from a foreseeable risk of injury from consuming the manufacturer's products when those products are used as intended. And this duty of care also extends to what we might call bystanders. So it extends to anyone who the manufacturer should reasonably foresee might be injured by their products. So for example, if you are walking down the street and a car careers into you because of its defective brakes, you could sue the manufacturer in negligence because of the defect in their product, even though you're not a purchaser or a consumer of the car in that sense. That's one established duty of care. We've also talked about the fact that builders and architects and others involved in the building process owe a duty of care to users or premises or buildings. So a similar duty of care is placed on people like builders and architects. We've talked about occupiers' duty of care to entrance onto land. So we talked about the fact that originally this area was dealt with under special principles where occupiers owed different duties of care to different kinds of entrance onto land. But in a case called Australian Safeway Stores and Zalazna, the High Court said, let's get rid of all of those special duties of care and whether or not an occupier owes a duty of care to entrance onto land is going to be determined simply by reference to the ordinary principles of negligence. So occupiers will owe entrance onto land a duty to take reasonable care to avoid a foreseeable risk of injury to entrance. However, we do know that the reason why you come onto land, your purpose uh, for entering onto land is going to be relevant to determining the scope or the standard of care that the occupier owes the entrant. So it's still relevant to determining the content of the duty if you like, but whether or not a duty of care will be owed will be determined based on the ordinary principles of negligence. Another established duty of care that we discuss is the duty of care owed to rescuers. If a defendant through their negligence creates a situation of perils and if I come to the rescue of that imperiled person the defendant who created that situation of peril will owe me as the rescuer a duty of care. So those are just a few of the established duties of care that we consider and there are a number of others including employers duty of care to employees, the duty of care that drivers owe to their passengers and to other road users and also the duty of care that healthcare professionals owe their patients. Right. Yeah, it's good to learn from the case developments in case of uh, occupiers and tenants that the key test that we would look to is always reasonable foreseeability of harm and the proximity and other factors could be relevant in terms of discussion. Moving on to another topic that's quite interesting. According to the courts, when should a duty to be imposed on third parties? That's again a good issue to ask about because it's another tricky area for the courts yeah. is when should a defendant owe a duty to supervise or control a third party who harms a plaintiff and this is again is a very difficult area first of all because generally people don't owe a duty to, to control someone else's behavior the other thing is that these cases often involve an omission by the defendant a failure to act and while negligence can be based on either a failure to act or a positive act it's harder to impose liability on a defendant for a failure to do something generally we don't impose a duty of care 
pressure on someone to take positive actions. The idea of negligence is that it regulates people's conduct. If you agree to undertake an action, negligence will ensure that you meet certain standards in undertaking that action. So this is a tricky area of law. In a case called Smith and Laws, Justice Dixon said that it's exceptional to find in the law a duty to control another's actions to prevent harm to strangers. The general rule is that one man is under no duty of controlling another man to prevent his doing damage to a third. And I'm sure that we can presume that he means women as well. But he said there are special relations which are a source of a duty of this nature. So some of these special relations which I discuss in the lecture include the relationship between parents and children. So parents who are in control of a young child have a duty to exercise reasonable care in their supervision and control of that child. Other kinds of special relationships of this nature include prison authorities and prisoners and employers and employees. In cases not involving these special relationships, the courts have considered what are the characteristics that make these relationships special and are those characteristics present in the case that they're considering. So an example of that, to illustrate what I mean, is Modbury Triangle and Ansel. So that's a case that we look at. The High Court was asking, do occupiers of land owe a duty to protect entrance, lawful entrance on the land? Do they owe a duty to protect those entrants from the criminal actions of third parties coming onto land? So that was a case involving a man who worked at the Modbury Triangle shopping centre and he was beaten up by some random assailants that came into the shopping centre's car park one night as he was getting into his car. So what was alleged there is that the defendant in this case, Modbury Triangle Shopping Centre, owed a duty to prevent those third parties from harming the plaintiff. So in some way, the plaintiff was alleging that the defendants were responsible for somehow controlling the behaviour of those random assailants. So the harm was actually caused by an independent third party, and the negligence here was a failure to supervise or control that some third party's behaviour in some way. So the court was saying here, okay, is the relationship between occupier and entrant one of those special relationships, like prison authorities and prisoners or parents and children, for example? And a majority of the High Court said that it wasn't. And one of the reasons why they said it wasn't well, that is because they said, well, okay, in these special relationships where a duty of care has previously been found, the defendant has a capacity and responsibility to control the actions of the third party that harmed the plaintiff. So they have the capacity and the responsibility to control the actions of the third party, but in this case, the defendant didn't. So Chief Justice Gleeson talks about the fact that criminal activity by its nature is irrational and unpredictable. And we, as a society, spend a lot of money on trying to prevent criminal activity and we are still not successful in doing so. In this case, there was no way that we could say that Modbury Triangle Shopping Centre had the capacity to control the behaviour of these random assailants. They had no capacity to control the behaviour of those assailants. And so a duty of care 
care could not be imposed on them. One of the circumstances in which a, a duty of care will be imposed on the defendant to control the tortious or criminal actions of a third party is where there is that capacity and responsibility to control the actions of the third party. Another situation that the court talks about in Monbury Triangle is where there is an assumption of responsibility by the defendant for the plaintiff's safety. So here they said, sure, the Triangle Centre had the capacity to control the lights in the shopping centre car park. So one of the specific allegation of negligence here was a failure by the shopping centre to leave on the lights in the car park so that the plaintiff could have got to his car with the lights on, which would have prevented or at least reduced the risk of him being attacked by assailants. So the High Court said, well, sure, the shopping centre could have controlled those lights, but that didn't mean it had assumed responsibility for the plaintiff's safety. If anything, his employer at the shopping centre, so the video store, where he worked, they should have taken responsibility for his safety. They're his employer. The shopping centre had not assumed that responsibility. So we can see in cases like Modbury Triangle, the High Court is looking at, again, what we might refer to as salient features. What are the factors of the existing cases that suggest that a duty of care should be imposed? So there is quite a significant body of case law now about when duties of care will be imposed on the defendant to control or supervise the actions of a third party, but it does still remain a somewhat contentious area of the law. Okay, you satisfied with that? Did you want to go on to um, psychiatric? Yeah, well, this area of psychiatric harm is really, really tricky. Speaking of contentious areas. <laughs> <laughs> because we have this interaction between case developments and also a sort of, I think a sort of like echoing of those cases in the legislative provisions, especially, um, I think it was section 30 and 32 of the CLA. This is a question that when I was doing towards, I was constantly wondering, in terms of learning this, those cases, because a lot of them are like the same thing as the legislative provisions, when should you be using the CLA? and where should you be using the cases in the answer? That's a really good question. Something to keep in mind is that the Civil Liability Act doesn't codify the civil law. It doesn't codify civil liability. In some areas of negligence, there aren't provisions of the Act that are relevant. Mm. In some areas of negligence, the Act modifies common law principles and it also regulates the award of damages. So what I always say to students is for each element of negligence, think to yourself, are there provisions of the Act that are relevant and how do they work? How do they interact with the common law? Because it's often not the case that it's it's one or the other. Often there are interactions between the common law and the Act. And to really understand how the Act applies, you need to understand the interactions between the two. Just as an example, the Act does not provide provide a general statement of the circumstances in which the relationship between a plaintiff and a defendant will give rise to a duty of care. So the Act doesn't provide a statement of a general test for establishing a duty of care. The Act does provide that a duty of care will not arise in relation to certain categories of relationship. I mean, just one example is that there are provisions on intoxication and in certain circumstances where the plaintiff is intoxicated, a duty of care will not arise. But in terms of the test for establishing a duty of care, we still have to look at the common law. That's predominantly our source of law. Similarly, in the area of negligently inflicted psychiatric injury, the Act 
doesn't create a test for when a duty of care can be established. The Act doesn't create liability. It restricts what is a common law claim. So the claim for negligently inflicted psychiatric injury is a common law claim that is restricted or limited by the provisions of the Act. We will be establishing a duty of care with reference to the common law, and then we will also need to consider the provisions of the Civil Liability Act. So um, as Brendan has mentioned, we're going to be looking at Part 3 of the Act, and that includes Section 30, 31 and 32, those sort of the main sections that we look at there. What's important to note there as well is that the Act modifies the common law principles on psychiatric injury. So we know from Tame and Annette's that a majority of the court, they said that the idea of the plaintiff being of normal fortitude shouldn't limit liability. It's always going to be a question of whether psychiatric injury is reasonably foreseeable, whether there's a reasonably foreseeable risk of psychiatric injury to the plaintiff. Section 32 of the Act brings that requirement of normal fortitude back in. And that's something that students can find a bit confusing, is that the Act modifies the common law. But I always say, keep in mind that principle of parliamentary supremacy, which we learn about in Foundations. The idea that Parliament can legislate to override or modify the common law. And that's what it has done in relation to psychiatric injury. The problem is the relationship between the common law and the Act is quite complicated. And often, well, always, you have to actually sit down for each element of negligence and think, okay, are there relevant provisions that we've looked at here? If there are, how do they work? How do they, how, do they modify the common law? Do they replace the common law test? Do we have to look to the common law and then the Act. And it is unfortunate that this area is confusing. It's it's not simply that it's confusing to someone who's unfamiliar with tort law, someone who's coming to it for the first time. It's confusing to everyone. There are parts of the Act that are perhaps not as drafted as clearly as they could be. We have to think through those issues very carefully. Something else I'll, I'll just mention and that may not come through in the lectures, we tend to focus on the common law prior to the Act because that's the source of our foundation foundational principles really. But there's a really significant body of case law on how the Act is interpreted. So often in decided cases that involve the Civil Liability Act, we're not just looking at common law before the Act, we're also looking at common law after the Act that interprets the Act and talks about how it applies. So always there is this interaction between the common law and statute law. That's it. Great. Any more questions? I mean, no, I don't think so. No. No. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Thank you very much Thank for joining so much. us. You're very welcome. <laughs> very informative. Yeah, it's it's comprehensive. It's like back in the old days again. Yeah, <laughs> going right. through it. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm very glad I could join you.
Barbara, she's the guru. This is what she thinks it means. Um, but that's kind of, that's the best we can do at the moment, so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She probably. Let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. I came too far.